Father, we come to you. We're glad that you're there. Uh, This week, over the last 10 days, I've talked to more guys in a concentrated period of time who are in distress financially and with their work than I can remember talking to. It happens. They, I, I, as you know, Lord, I, I run across guys at conferences, but it's, there's just been a bunch of late. And um, some guys inevitably are here tonight, and that's where they are. And Lord, that's why we come to you. You are our Father. Your eye is upon us. You have brought us to Christ, forgiven our sins, given us eternal life. And we are so grateful. But you have not forgotten the fact that we live daily. Before we get to heaven, we just got to make it. Isaiah 41, you said, do not fear, for I am with you. Do not anxiously look about you, for I am your God. I will help you. I will strengthen you. I will uphold you with my mighty right hand. I pray, Lord, that your promise, whether it's that one or others, the guys that are right on the edge, that they would be looking unto Jesus. You're the same God. You have the same power. You know all things. You know our situations. You you understand our thought from afar. You know the worry. You know the fear. You know the stakes. You know the stakes better than we do. We think we do, but there are so many things we're not even aware of. You said to cast all your fear. Peter said, cast your fear upon him because he cares for you. And we thank you that you care. We, we thank you that your grace is uh, rarely early. It's never late. It's always just in time. It's in the nick of time. And, and I feel prompted tonight to pray for the guys that are waiting for a timely response. The psalmist said, answer me quickly, for I am in distress. So for those men, we hold them up to you, Lord. Uh, it's in these moments, a lot of times, that we, we wish that we had more faith. We, uh, we struggle. What, what helps our faith, Lord, as you know, is, is when you rescue us at just the right time. You said, call on me in the day of trouble. I will rescue you and you will honor me. And when we have a track record of looking back and seeing you come through at the most strategic moment, it builds our faith. We would rather not be in these situations at all. But Lord, you oversee these situations. You actually lead us into them to show us your greatness. 
I pray that you'll do that this week for the men that need it this week. We all need grace. We all need mercy. We need it daily. And we count on it. But there are times when we are in acute crisis. It's for those men in particular we pray tonight. And those of us that are doing, we're not in crisis. Things are going relatively well. We're grateful and we thank you. But we'll be in crisis again. That's just the nature of the Christian life. And you'll sustain us and get us through. And we'll do some more reps on the bench press and build some more spiritual muscle. That's just how it is until we get to heaven. And you're faithful through it all. We look to you tonight. Instruct us, teach us, give each guy what he needs. From your word, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Hebrews 11, we're still in God's Hall of Fame, working our way through it. We had an interesting section tonight. Um, last week we were talking about Abraham, and he is one of the pillars of faith. And we're going to talk a little bit more about Abraham tonight, but when you talk about Abraham, often, how many times do you hear this phrase, uh, the God of Abraham... And then what else? Isaac and Jacob. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they just go together. Why? Well, because you got Abraham, then his son Isaac, then his son Jacob. Um, G.K. Chesterton once said this. He said, the most extraordinary thing in the world. Okay? Get your head around this. The most extraordinary thing in the world is an ordinary man and an ordinary woman and their ordinary children. That's extraordinary. His point was this. His point was this. God made families. God invented the family. God is all about family and God is all about relationship. And Adam and Eve, and then they had their sons, and because sin had entered the world, there was immediately a fissure in the family. But even as we've been in Hebrews 11, and we're talking about those Old Testament saints who walked by faith, trusting in the coming Christ, that he would be the one who forgave their sins, right out of the blocks in Hebrews 11, it starts with Abel and Cain. And then it talks about Enoch, who walked with God. Um, and, and then you work your way on down through the, New Test, uh, through the Old Testament guys. You get into Noah. We talked about Abraham, the, the three critical events in Abraham's life last week. But we're not quite done with Abraham because as soon as you talk about Abraham, you've got to talk about his family. Um, Abraham, now we all know Abraham because he's famous. But I like that quote from Chesterton. It's extraordinary that God takes an ordinary man, ordinary wife, ordinary kids. Um, we're all ordinary. We're all average, quite frankly. I'm just here to build your self-esteem. I, I hope this is helping you. Uh, aren't we? We're really not much to talk about. We're just, hey, you know, we are what we are. 
Abraham Lincoln said, God must love average men. He made so many of them. Uh, most of us aren't famous. We aren't in, the, aren't in the limelight. We're just going about our work. Pretty much we're ordinary. But what's, what's amazing is that God does extraordinary things in the lives of ordinary people and ordinary families. Um, our text tonight in Hebrews 11, it will pick up from verse 17 where we were last week. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. You remember the story. Uh, he's, uh, God had told him, I'm going to give you a son. I'm going to give you descendants. There are going to be as many of your descendants as there are stars in the heaven. Well, he's 99 years old, and he doesn't have a son. Now, he has a son through his handmaiden. But God meant, I'm going to give you a son physically through your wife, Sarah. And he believed the Lord, and God counted to him as righteousness. Uh, the thing is, a lot of times, God does not come through at the time we think that it makes sense that he would come through. Right? I mean, what makes sense for having a son is when you're still able to perform as a male and your wife is, has not hit menopause yet. That kind of makes sense, does it not? Well, not only has she hit menopause, Sarah, he's 99, she's uh, 89, she's, she's about 40-some years past menopause. She hasn't had a hot flash in 40 years. She's way past that. And, uh, but the Lord said, and I won't spend too much time on this, it just seemed absolutely impossible. And a year later, they got a little baby. At 100 and the age of 90. Uh, he loved that child, Isaac, at a certain point years later. And we, again, I'm just summarizing. God said, take that boy, and I want you to sacrifice your boy. And so he sets out with some servants. They go to Mount Moriah. This is Genesis 22. Uh, his boy says, hey, Dad, where's the sacrifice? We got everything else. Where's the sacrifice? He says, God will provide a sacrifice. And then at a certain point, he said to the servants, you stay here. And then he said this, we shall return. That's very interesting, because God told him to sacrifice his son. Well, why would he say that? Well, verse 18, it was he to whom it was said, in Isaac your descendant shall be called. Watch this. He considered that God is able to raise people even from the dead, from which he also received him back as a type. Uh, I, I'm going to do what God says. I'm going to put this boy in the altar. I'm going to sacrifice him. And he put that boy in the altar, put the knife up, and God said, hold your horses, or words to that effect. Get that boy off of there. And there was a ram caught in the thicket. God provided a lamb. You see, his faith was tested. Um, but his faith was such that even when the timing was all wrong, even when this makes no, the ways of God was wrong, sacrifice this kid, he knew that God had the power to raise that boy from the dead. Now, most of us are not in situations that are extreme as this, but often what God does, he puts us in a situation where our hopes and our plans and our dreams die. And there's, there's been, there's been uh, th these, this represents years of our life. This represents, uh, and a lot of times you've got family involved because we're in families. We just don't live by ourselves. Even if you're single here tonight, you've got a family somewhere. You don't live all by yourself. We are interconnected, you see. 
So, oh, my, my dad's with the Lord, my mom, and okay, fine. But you, you got somebody somewhere, you got blood kin, as they used to say, somewhere. None of us uh, are just living by ourselves. You are connected to somebody else by blood. It's how God has designed everything. Now watch this. So that's Abraham who was tested. Verse 19. By faith, Isaac, now who's Isaac? That's the boy of promise that was given to Abraham, okay? Verse 20. By faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau. Well, who's, no, who's Jacob and Esau? Those were the twin boys that God gave to Isaac. So you got Abraham, you got Isaac, you got Jacob and his twin brother Esau. And then verse 21, by faith, Jacob, as he was dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph. Joseph, yeah, because he was Joseph's dad. Joseph was one of the boys. How many boys did Jacob have? He had 12 boys. He had one daughter, Dinah, 13 kids. You see, Joseph was one of them. So when Jacob's an old man, by faith Jacob, as he was dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, Ephraim and Manasseh. Those are his two boys. Leaning on the top of his staff. And then verse 22, by faith Joseph, when he was dying. We're all going to die. It's good to think about that. Because it's life. God oversees our lives from the womb to the tomb. But we're going to die. Unless we're here for the return of Christ, we're going to die. Okay? By faith, Joseph, when he was dying, made mention of the exodus of the sons of Israel. Now, let's just stop right here. Because Hebrews 11 is about these guys who walk by faith. Okay? They walk by faith. They believed, uh, Hebrews 11, 6. Those who come to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those that diligently seek him. We follow God. We walk a path. We walk it every day. Trusting God to bring in what we need at the right time, whether it's finances or key people. Uh, we, we need life, life is walking, trusting in God to be there and deliver for us when we need it. It might be financially, it might be relationally, it might be your health, it might, we're, we're, we're trusting God to make a way from it, for us. And, and I don't care where you are in life, I don't care what your age is, this is a new path for you. If you're, uh, if you're 25, you've never been 25 before. You know what it's like to be 24, but you've never been 25. If you're 42, you've never been 42. You, you've been through the 30s, but you've never been 42, and what you're... This stretch of highway that you're on right now, it's absolutely new to you. Or if you're in your 60s or your 80s or your 90s, wherever you are, it's a new stretch and you need God to lead you. And so do I. Right? The, the, the challenges are different every day, but his mercies are new every morning. So what we are doing each day when we get up, we're counting on his mercies being new, Lamentations 3, and we are walking by faith. I'll tell you what, pretty much every morning when I roll out of bed, I get conscious and I roll out, I say, Lord, lead me. And I don't say it, just not habit, I mean it. Lead me. I don't know what I'm going to face out there today. I mean, I got my plan and I got my stuff and, you know, I got to do this and this. But there's stuff coming I don't know about. Lead me. Give me your wisdom. That's where we all are. And it never changes. By faith, Joseph, when he was dying, now watch this. See, well, here's what I'm saying. We're trusting the promises of God, 
And somehow, <laughs> it, it talks in here about the fact that, uh, for instance, all right, Abraham, uh, look at, uh, I'm going to make a point, but I've got to come in the back door. Look at verse 13 of Hebrews 11. All these died in faith without receiving the promises. Well, what the heck does that mean? Well, the previous verse says about Abraham, even though he was as good as dead in terms of his body and able to procreate, God was going to give him as many descendants as the stars of the heaven in number and innumerable as the sand which is in by the seashore. I, said, I made a mistake a couple weeks ago. I said when Abraham died, he had one son through the line of Sarah, which was uh, Isaac. I was wrong on that. He actually had Isaac, and then 15 years prior to his death, uh, Jacob and Esau had been born. So literally, he had three descendants. But I'll tell you what, they weren't as innumerable as the stars in the heaven or the sand in the sea, were they? See, he died without seeing the promise. But was God going to fulfill the promise? Watch this. Yes, but God was going to fulfill it through his descendants. Because there's always stuff when we die left undone in terms of God's plan for us, watch this, and our families. God doesn't just deal with us as individuals. He deals with us and our families. God's all about relationships. So you look at 22, by faith, Joseph, when he was dying, made mention of the exodus of the sons of Israel. Let me tell you why that's interesting. The exodus, and verse 23 is the next verse after verse 22. How's that for logic? It's blazing logic. Okay? Well, who's the guy that led the Exodus? We won't talk about him tonight. Moses led the Exodus. Okay. We all know that. Uh, Joseph didn't know Moses was going to lead the Exodus, but he knew there was going to be an Exodus. And by the way, when he was dying, he made mention of the Exodus of the sons of Israel. Because through Joseph and his brothers selling him into slavery, he wound up in Egypt at a critical time. You know the story. There was famine. He's in prison. God raises him up, makes him equal with Pharaoh. He's distributing the food that he had administrated in a time of crisis. You know that amazing story. That's how the Jews got into Egypt. Okay? But later it says that a, a Pharaoh arose, a king arose who did not know Joseph, and these... Uh, these uh, Israelites over in the subdivision called Goshen are, I mean, they're, they're having kids like, like rabbits. And they start outnumbering, and, the, and, and, and he enslaves them. By faith, when he was dying, made mention of the Exodus. The Exodus of the people of Israel wouldn't happen for 400 years after Joseph died. Yet God let him know that one day his people would go back to the promised land. And so he said to them, he didn't know when the timing was, but he says, hey, when you guys go out and go back to the promised land, take my bones and bury them with you. He did that by faith. There's always something we're trusting God for. Always. I've mentioned, uh, I've mentioned, uh, I think in here, my, my uh, great-grandmother, uh, Grandma Cox, and I remember her. I was four or five years old, and she was in her late 90s, and she was 
in that back bedroom at Nana's house. And uh, just, you know, she lived a long life and had 13 children. Uh, she loved the Lord, and she was a prayer warrior. And uh, 13 kids. Um, she prayed for her sons. None of her sons, all her sons had turned their back on the gospel. All of them. They were, and I remember going to our, the, the Cox family reunions. Because there's 13 kids, and you know, you'd have 300 people at the reunions. Uh, we go to some park somewhere, and Uncle Charlie would dig a pit and put in half a side of beef, and you know, it was good, those were good days. And uh, back, back during the Civil War, actually, it was a long time ago. <laughs> but Uncle Charlie, Uncle Ross, Uncle Gene, all those guys, Uncle Ed, those guys were hard drinking, uh, truck driving, cowboy. They get, they get a couple drinks, they'll, they'll, they'll fight you without thinking twice. They were just tough guys, sweet men to me, but just, you know. And she prayed for her boys, and she died, and none of them knew the Lord. And then one by one, they started coming, one by one. And I mean, they came to know Christ, and they came to know Christ. And they were bombastic about it. As, as much as they were against him, they became for him. That's really interesting to me, that I can think back. Uh, I was four or five. She's in her late 90s. See, she was my great-grandmother. Then I had Nana. Then I have my mom. And then there's me on my mother's side. So that's, I'm the fourth generation. Okay, well then I've got my three kids. And then I got my first little grandbaby, Madeline. See, as I stand here, I can see six generations. And my mom has told me, she can remember as, as a young girl, that sometimes my great-grandmother Cox uh, would be so burdened for her sons that she would, at times, excuse her. They'd be having dinner, and she would excuse herself. Not say anything, not make anything, excuse me. And there was such a burden and a heaviness on her for their salvation, she would get up and go into the bedroom and pray. Isn't that something? Can I say this to you? See, God just doesn't save individuals. God has planned for families. Isn't that interesting? He's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Joseph. What I'm trying to say to you guys is what you've got from verse 17 to verse 22 is that just those short verses we read, you've got four generations. Four generations. Ordinary men, nothing more extraordinary than an ordinary man, ordinary wife, ordinary kids. But God does extraordinary things. That's what I'm trying to say to you. you uh, on my dad's side, uh, my grandpa's name was Juby. Oh, yeah. J-U-B-E-E. Juby Spurgeon Farrar. Now, that's interesting. And I'll tell you why it's interesting. Because... He was raised in Virginia, Roman Catholic. 
but his middle name was Spurgeon. And he, died, and he was born just as the ministry of the great London preacher, C.H. Spurgeon, was coming to an end. And I asked my dad, I asked my Uncle Joe the story, and they, didn't, they, didn't, they, they couldn't tell me anything. They didn't know. I said, so he was raised Roman Catholic. How did he get named after C.H. Spurgeon? They said, they don't know. But somehow he did. So somebody, his mom, his dad, I don't know had been influenced by C.H. Spurgeon, names him after Spurgeon. He goes to Catholic schools, walking in Richmond, Virginia. One day, I guess it was a Sunday morning, heard some singing coming out of a storefront, kind of looked in, you know, walked in, heard the gospel, came to Christ. Uh, wound up being a preacher. Um, I actually found on the internet a few months ago in the denominational magazine that he was a part of, I saw a little, for lack of, they, they had in the back, because it was a new denomination and you know there was a lot of moving around, if you were available for a call, you could put your name in the back of the denominational magazine, and there was his name, and he was 22 years old. And uh, my dad hadn't been born yet, but he was available, and he was praying at 22 that God would lead him and God would use him, and he didn't know where he was going. But God led him um, from Virginia to Colorado. Then he took a church in Monterey, California. My, my boy Josh and his wife were out in California this week and they were going to Monterey. I said, well, you look under the pier, that's where my dad and Uncle Joe used to fish. You see that picture on the wall in our kitchen with me and my brothers? That was taken at Monterey Pier. No, no kidding, Dad, yeah. So you get to that pier, you bow down. <laughs> there's some, he goes, Dad, there's some history there. I go, yeah, there is, yeah. And then he took a church up in Napa Valley. Before Napa Valley, anybody cared about it. Napa, Mendocino, Sonoma, whatever. You know, they weren't up there drinking wine. They were trying to live. They were trying to survive in the Depression. You see? He was 22. He didn't know what he was doing. My dad ain't even been born yet. Hey, guys, what I'm trying to tell you is God works through families and God works through individuals, and there's a plan. We don't live in isolation, do we? God has a plan when he brings us to Christ. I find it interesting that the Philippian jailer when he was about ready to kill himself because God had opened the doors, that Paul said to him, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved and thy house. Now, is that a blanket promise? No, but it was to him. And oftentimes, see, what God begins to work in a family, but God begins to work in a family, and maybe you're, you know, I, I, I am blessed because I've been prayed for on both sides of my family for on, on my dad's side for three generations and at least four on my other side. I'm thankful for that heritage. You see? You say, man, I wish I had a heritage like that. Well, start one. You know, I told you that what I try to do in the morning is get my Bible, get my coffee and get in my chair and read my Bible. That's how I start. I learned it from my dad. Where'd my dad learn it? He learned it from his dad. Where'd he learn it? He started it. Put a new link in the family chain. When Christ brings you, then you, 
To any man in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things pass away, all things become new. All things. So see, he's got a plan, and it's just not for you. You say, yeah, but my kids, I've come to the Lord, but nobody else in my family has an interest. And you know what I'd say to you? I would say, yet. You don't know yet. You don't, the last chapter hasn't been written, has it? No, it hasn't been written. You never know what the Lord's going to do. I had something happen several months ago. In, in, in the same week, I had a guy come to me, and he'd raised his kid in Christian schools and in a solid church and all that, and he was heartbroken. He said, Steve, my, my son has told me that he's going into the homosexual lifestyle. And, and he was crushed. He, he could hardly speak, and you can understand that. 20-year-old, 21-year-old kid. I mean, he, was, he was crushed. Um, within that same week, had a guy said, Steve, i got to share something with you. And he had tears in his eyes. He said, you know, seven, eight years ago, my son raised him to know the Lord, Awana, Bible-teaching churches. I mean, this kid, we gave him the gospel. He decided he was going to pursue the homosexual lifestyle. He said, no kidding. And he said, he's come back. I said, what? He goes, yeah. He called me this week. He's coming home. Lord's done a work in his life. He's walking away. From, I mean, he could hardly talk. Isn't that something? You just, and he had prayed and prayed and prayed. I'm sure there were moments he thought it was hopeless. You never know what God's going to do. You just never know what he's going to do. He's the God of Abraham. He's the God of Isaac. He's the God of Jacob. He's the God of Joseph. You say, yeah, Stephen, my family's, my family's really messed up. Well, I'm glad my family isn't. You know what I did this morning? Uh, the story in Hebrews 11 that begins just from verse 17, speaking of Abraham, and then the 22. So, I mean, it's all compacted into what? Five verses? You got four generations in five verses. So what I did, I went to Genesis, and I started in Genesis 12, and, and the story of those four generations is in Genesis 12 to Genesis 50. So I scanned it. I want to tell you something. <laughs> the family of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that's what you call one dysfunctional family. You see? They were messed up. They had some issues. You say, you wouldn't believe my family. Oh, yeah, I would. Every family is messed up. Every family has their stuff. Every family at Christmas time, you get together, there's some weird uncle, and you're just dreading seeing the guy. Because he's going to embarrass somebody or do something stupid. I mean, it's family, families are families. Families are made up of broken people. We got sin, we got shame. Uh, some of us know the Lord, some of us don't. We got uh, some relationships are adversarial. It's just, man, I'll tell you what, it's, it, that's why the holidays can be so exhausting for some people. Because we're all sinners. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. It's just how it is. But God's in process, and God's at work. Um, J. Allen Peterson, uh, excellent counselor over the years, has written some excellent books on marriage. And he has an excellent story. And it would really be excellent if I could find it. 
and it's in here somewhere. Let's have the ushers come forward <laughs> as I find the story. Why isn't this story? Ah, it was the first place I turned. Uh, this happened to him on a 747. He flew a lot, traveled a lot. Uh, let me just read it to you. Every nook and cranny of the big 747 was crowded. It took off in the middle of the night in Brazil where I'd been speaking. As it moved into the night, I started to doze. I don't know how long I slept, but I was starting to wake when I heard a strong voice announcing, we have a very serious emergency. Three engines had gone out because of fuel contamination, and the other engine would go any second. The steward said in English, now you must do exactly as we tell you. Don't think of doing anything we do not suggest. Your life depends on this. We are trained for your safety, so you must do exactly as we tell you. Then he rattled off the same statement in Portuguese. Everyone looked soberly around at one another. The steward said, now pull down the curtains. In a few minutes, we are going to turn off the lights. And my thoughts said, dear Lord, help me. The plane veered and banked as the crew tried to get it back to the airport. The steward ran up and down the aisle and barked out orders. Now take that card out of the seat pocket, and I want you to look at the diagram. And then Peterson says, you know, I have flown millions of miles all over the world, and here I thought I had that card memorized. But I panicked because I couldn't find the crazy card. Everybody looked stunned as we felt the plane plunge down. Finally, the steward said, now tighten the seat belts as tight as you can, pull up your legs, bury your head in your lap. We couldn't look out to see where we were, whether we were high or low. I peeked around. The Portuguese people, most of them were crossing themselves, and I thought, this is it. This is serious. I can't believe this. I didn't know this was going to happen tonight. I, I, I guess this is it. And, and I had a crazy sensation. Then the steward's voice broke into my consciousness, barking out a machine gun fashion. Prepare for impact. Prepare for impact. At a time like that, involuntarily from deep inside of us, something comes out that's never structured, planned, or rehearsed. And all I could do was pray. Everybody started to pray. Everybody on the plane started to pray. I found myself praying in a way I never thought of doing. As I buried my head in my lap and pulled my knees up, as I was convinced it was over, I said, Oh God, thank you. Thank you for the incredible privilege of knowing you. Life has been wonderful as the plane was going down. My last thought, my last cry was, Oh God, my wife, oh God, my children. And they made it back to the airport. And they couldn't believe it. They landed that sucker. And they walked off into that terminal. And here's what he says. I walked back into that terminal, an absolute nervous wreck. <laughs> I'm a nervous wreck just reading the thing. <laughs> I was a nervous wreck. I was struggling for perspective. And as I wandered in the middle of the night in the airport with a knot in my stomach and cotton in my mouth, I couldn't even speak. I ached all over. I, I went over it. I thought, what did I do? What did I say? What were my thoughts? Why did I think that? And then I wondered, what was the bottom line? And then Peterson says, here's the bottom line. Relationships. Relationships. 
we don't live by ourselves. He's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's the God of Juby Spurgeon Farrar and James Rowland Farrar and Stephen James Farrar and uh, my three kids, none of which I can remember their names right now. <laughs> Relationships. Relationships. So I read through Genesis uh, 12 to 15, uh, 38 chapters. I was scanning it, just scanning it. And you know what? These were ordinary people. And I'll tell you what, they had some messed up stuff. Messed up stuff. But God invaded their lives, each one at a different time. Uh, and uh, began to work. One of the boys peeled off and apparently never had a relationship. That would be Esau. See, he's not mentioned, uh, interestingly enough. I mean, he's mentioned in passing. But he rebelled against his father, and that, it's, just, it's just an interesting story. He got bitter towards his brother. Uh, he was not supposed to marry uh, a Canaanite woman, and he went ahead and did it. It, 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 you know, because sometimes kids peel off and they don't, they, they make up their mind and they don't want to follow the Lord God. But other times someone is just as hard and just as embittered and, 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 and God invades their heart and they respond and you see, you just, but you never know what's going to transpire. Turn with me to, uh, here's what I'm trying to say to you. In Hebrews 11, Verses 17 through 22, you got four generations. And, and these are people who walk by faith. And they all had a different story, and they all had different situations, and they had different issues, and they had different uh, sins that would come out in their lives, but they were connected, is what I'm trying to say to you. And God's promises to Abraham that he did not see completely fulfilled when he died, God was going to fulfill them through coming generations. That's what I'm trying to say. And God does the same through us. He did it for my great-grandmother. You see? How about your family? What are you praying for with your kids? Go with me, to, if you would, to Psalm 127 and 128. You know, I, I, I'm going back over Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and I'm, I'm scanning this. Let me tell you something. They had times where husbands and wives were at great odds with each other. I mean, they were manipulating each other. I mean, you had a situation where uh, one of the reasons, uh, uh, you know, I'm going to get to 127. You had a situation. Why was Esau so mad at his brother? Because his brother Jacob was a deceiver. His brother Jacob, you got Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But Jacob, um, and Esau was kind of impulsive and was a hunter, and he came in one day and he was famished, and uh, Jacob watched the Food Channel, and he was home trying some recipe he had seen, and 
he's mixing it up, and his brother comes in and says, what is that stuff? He goes, oh, I saw it, you know, on Blue Channel. He goes, well, give me some. He goes, I'm going to give you, you know, you get your own. He goes, I'll give you my birthright. Oh, okay. you'll give me your birthright? All right, here, have the pot, man. So this dumb Esau gives up his primogenitor as firstborn son. He got it all. Gives it up to his brother. Now, he's not the, you know, the guy's not real sharp. He didn't get a perfect score in the SAT. You know what I'm talking about? Okay. So he was very impulsive. So his brother Jacob, but later, uh, when his father's old, his mom says, uh, Esau was going to go out and get his dad some meat and fix him a dish. And his mother says, uh, put on some hair. And all. In other words, we're going to con your dad and we're going to have him bless you. That's one messed up family. You got a mother encouraging the son to lie to the father. That's dysfunction, okay? Uh, families are messed up. Families have issues. Families have stuff. Yeah, what I'm trying to say, these people didn't walk around with uh, glows coming off their head, like you'd see in Renaissance paintings or whatever the period was, you know? They weren't like that. They were just people, they were ordinary people living their lives and they had their stuff and they had their junk just like you do, I do, families do. Okay. But when God starts to work, when God starts to work, everything comes into perspective. Here's the relationships of the gospel. And when Christ comes into our lives, he wants to, he wants, he wants to affect not only us, but our children and their kids. And Okay, let's read it. Psalm 127. Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. A lot of people are working to build a home and a family. A lot of people. Some of them know the Lord, some of them don't. But unless the Lord builds the house, they who labor, labor in vain. What's happened is, and this happens sometimes, you get a husband and wife and you know, you're married and uh, you know, both are committed to the Lord, time goes by, and it becomes pretty clear that one of the members really isn't committed to the Lord. And we used to have laws that made it very, very difficult to get a divorce. Now, in the 60s, when everything changed in the 60s, now it's very easy to get a divorce. It, it's just, it's ridiculous easy to get a divorce. Someone goes nuts and you can't stop them. It used to be you could stop them. Hopefully they would come to their senses. What I'm trying to say to you is, sometimes you have situations where two people get married, both committed to the Lord, time goes by, it becomes kind of clear, you know what, one, one individual's not committed to the Lord, and they veer off. And you can't stop them because you want the Lord to build your house, but they don't. This happens. Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman keeps awake in vain. It is vain for you to rise up early, to retire late, to eat the bread of painful labors. It's talking about providing for a family. In order to do that, we rise up early. We go to bed late. We eat, we eat bread, but man, I'll tell you what, it costs us an arm and a leg. To get that paycheck and to do this, a lot of times, men, we're exhausted. We're just flat worn out. But you got a safety net. Are you out there working? If a man doesn't provide for his own, he's worse than an unbeliever. What's that, 1 Timothy 5.23, I think? Somewhere in there, I know it's 1 Timothy 5. Men are supposed to work. Men are supposed to provide. Sometimes we can't sleep at night because we're not sure how we're going to provide because everything's closing in on us and we can't find work or we're going to have to shut down this or shut down and we're just scared to death. The Lord knows that. Look at the next verse. 
he gives to his beloved even in his sleep. He, know, he knows where you are. He knows the pressure. So you've got a safety net. Uh, chapter, uh, verse 3. Behold, children are a gift of the Lord. They're also an inconvenience. Are they not? Come on, don't look at me like that. Yeah. They're an inconvenience. Scott asked me coming in, how's your little granddaughter? I said, she's colicky. And she is. And Rachel came over the other day, and she walked in, and she said, Mary and I were there, she said, I'm sorry, I got, I got spit up on my shirt, and I got poop on my shorts. I said, welcome to the real world. And she couldn't see straight, because she's got a little colicky girl. And Scott said, I remember with my kids walking around for hours, patting them on and then opening the refrigerator door so they can get cold air and open up the, oh yeah. And you guys remember that? Yeah. No, they're a gift of the Lord. They're also an inconvenience. And they make you grow up. But you wouldn't change it, would you? No. See, couples, a year ago, year and a half ago, uh, my daughter and her husband had a really nice life. I mean, they're really doing well. They take nice little weekend jaunts. And, they, you know, <laughs> and now they can't even see straight. They're so exhausted. All they want is, they just want to sleep. They just want to sleep. You know? Children are a gift from the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Watch this. Like arrows in the hands of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. You know what kids are? You die. But you've raised those kids to know the Lord. You say, yeah, but see, my son or my daughter's not walking with the Lord. Well, they aren't right now. You don't know what God's going to do. You don't know what he's going to do. But watch this. What those kids are, they're arrows in our quiver. And you die. You know what you do with those kids? You shoot them into the next generation. You shoot those kids who have been given godly truth in the next generation. Even if they're not following it now, that doesn't mean that God's not going to work in their life at some point. So you shoot them by faith and trust God to work even when you go into eternity. Watch this. Watch this now. Uh, children are a gift of the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Like arrows in the hands of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. How blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. They will not be ashamed when they speak with their enemies in the gates. Go to 128. They're tied together. How blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in his ways. When you eat of the fruit of your hands, you will be happy. It will be well with you. Your wife shall be like a fruitful vine within your house. Uh, it's a blessing to have kids. She'll be uh, a fruitful vine within your house. Your children like olive plants. So if you go to Israel, there'll be the old city of Jerusalem up there on that hill. And then on the eastern side, it drops down really sharply. There's a ravine, there's a valley, and then it comes right back up. And right there, that's the Mount of Olives, going up the side of the Mount of Olives. Uh, Garden of Gethsemane, because they would also press them there. And there's a church that's been there a while. And as you walk into this church, outside that church, maybe, I, I don't remember how big it is, maybe a quarter of an acre, half, I don't know. There's a courtyard uh, fenced, but it's full of olive trees. Some of you have been there. And uh, well, I, I, several of those olive trees are 2,000 years old. 2000, they were there when Jesus was there. 
gnarled, bent. I mean, they're the most amazing trees to look at. And you still see the leaves, the green leaves, still life. But, but they didn't start out that way. They started as olive plants. You see? Those are kids. Okay. Watch this. Your wife will be like a fruitful vine within your house. Your children like olive plants around your table. Is there anything better than having a family dinner? Anything? Not really. You remember the old beer commercial? The guys are out in the Snake River, and they're out there fighting. And one of the guys looks at the other guy, and goes, hey, Fred, yeah, it doesn't get any better than this. And then later they're by the campfire drinking their beer, vomiting over each other. It's great. <laughs> one of the guys says, hey, yeah, yeah, it doesn't get any better than this. Well, you know, it actually does. Doesn't it? You know what I'm talking about. When God, when you see the blessing of God in your life, and you know it's amazing grace, and it could have all been taken from you because you're so hard to live with, you see. And we all are hard to live with. But God's been gracious, and God's been kind, and you got your kids, and you just, gosh, start tearing up just thinking about it, don't you? The amazing grace of God. And see, it's relationships. It's relationships. It's family. Uh, the Lord bless you from Zion, verse 5. And may you see the prosperity of Jerusalem all the days of your life. Indeed, may you see your children's, what? Children. Peace be upon Israel. Uh, that's the goodness. That's, that's the goodness of God. Um, Edith Schaefer wrote this in her book, Tapestry. She said, you are a thread, and I am a thread. Uh, you know, the tapestry, uh, you know, you'll see them now. You see them in England in those castles. If you go to, uh, what was uh, uh, Churchill's family home? Blenheim. Is that it? Blenheim, yeah. Biggest castle in England. That's his family, Duke of Marlborough. Only his dad wasn't the firstborn son. His dad wasn't primogenitor, so he didn't get to live. But they were visiting, and his mom's water broke, so he was born in that castle. And it's one of those old deals like you see on the BBC, you know, series, and you go, this place is unbelievable. And you can walk through them, and they have these tapestries. I mean, some are, you know, 20 feet high and 15 feet wide. I mean, they're amazing, and they're great battles. You know, look at it. You flip those suckers over, and you know what it is? It's just a series of threads that make no sense. Right? She says, you are a thread, and I am a thread, as we affect each other's ideas, physical beings, spiritual understanding, or material possessions, or as we influence each other's attitudes, creativity, courage, determination to keep on, moods, priorities, understanding, spiritually, intellectually, and emotionally. We are at the same time affecting history. History is different because you have lived and because I have lived. We have each caused ripples that will never end, and we continue to cause ripples. Why? Because we're in families. Yes, we are. Have your kids ever said something to you that, you, that they remembered, and you don't even know what they're talking about, and it was significant in their life? Yeah. That's a ripple. You, know, you didn't even know what happened. 
because it's generations. It's generations. The gener you ever up at five in the morning reading through your Bible and you get to a genealogy? You go, oh, God. Take a steroid shot to keep going. Why? Oh, that's boring. Genealogies are boring. We think genealogies are boring. Let me tell you what's boring. What's boring are other people's genealogies. <laughs> right? <laughs> Your genealogy is fascinating. And that's why you get on there and you try to track it down, and that's what I was doing on Ancestry.com. We're trying to find it. Well, our, our genealogy is fascinating. Yeah, it is. And what that is, it's a big chain. It's a big tapestry. It's threads. The big aircraft carriers have two anchors. They have massive chains. I looked this up one time. USS Eisenhower has two massive anchors. Huge change. Each link in the chain weighs 365 pounds. Each link weighs 365 pounds. How can an anchor hold an aircraft carrier? Well, it takes two, but each link is important. See, each, and that's how our lives are. That's what 127 and 128 is about. When we see the blessing of God on our families. Um, I, I really want to encourage you guys who are the first in your families to come to Christ. I want you to be encouraged for what God has in mind that you may never see. You don't have a clue. None of us have a clue. But we can pray. We can pray and we can ask God to bless future generations. Do you ever pray for your, um, do you ever pray for the next generation in your family that has yet to be born? Pray for them. Go ahead and pray for them. That's what George McCluskey did. He was a pastor 100 years ago. Nobody knew him, wasn't famous. He's just a guy, just a little tiny church. He and his wife had two little girls, and one day it hit him that one day his girls would grow up and get married, and, and you know, and he thought, my gosh. And he had a burden for his daughters uh, to know Christ and to marry godly young men. He made a commitment. Lunch hour, every day, he would shut his door and he would pray for his two daughters. And he prayed that those two little girls, they're just little girls, he prayed they both come to know Christ and they would marry men that love Christ. The next generation. And it struck him one day, he'd done this for quite a while, it struck him one day, well, you know what, my, my, my daughters hopefully will have kids. I had to pray for their kids. They're still a little girl. So he starts praying for his daughter's children. He prays for them, faithfully. That each one will know Christ, they'll marry godly spouses. And he's doing this for a while, and then he said, well, you know what, those kids will have kids. So he starts praying for the next three generations. George McCluskey did that. So here's what happened. His daughters both came to know the Lord. Uh, both married young men that loved Christ. Interestingly enough, both young men became pastors. Uh, then both of his daughters and her husbands, they had children. Uh, all of those kids of that generation came to know Christ. Interestingly enough, all of the boys of that generation became pastors. All of the girls married pastors. 
Could have been shoe cobblers. That, that's fine. I mean, nothing wrong, but God just, for some reason. Then the next generation came along. And the first two were boys. They were cousins. They wound up rooming in college together. And uh, their freshman year of college, one of the boys decided he was going to be a pastor. And the other boy started feeling the heat because he knew the family story. <laughs> and he didn't want to be a pastor. He had no interest in being a pastor. I mean, he could care less about being a pastor. He was fascinated with psychology, so he just kept studying psychology and, you know, and I'm sure someone in the family thought, are you going to be a pastor? No, I'm going to do this. And they thought it was kind of weird. And he went on and got his doctorate, did all this. And see, a lot of people, a lot of people really thought that James Dobson was the black sheep of his family because he was the first guy in three generations, four generations, not to be a pastor. That's kind of wild, isn't it? This guy, oh, George McCluskey, died three months before his maternal great-grandson, James Dobson, was born. Never had a clue. I found a book a couple years ago. Some of you guys, uh, this is a wild book. Uh, you ever had a pint of Guinness? I'm going to ask the ushers to come forward. <laughs> the book is called The Search for God in Guinness. It's the story of the Guinness Brewery and the man who started it, a man named Arthur Guinness. Arthur Guinness was a committed Christian. Uh, came to the Lord through the ministry of John Wesley. He was a young man that was given a small inheritance, and he wanted to make a difference in the life of others. Jesus said, was asked one time, what is the greatest commandment? And Jesus said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart. And the second is the same as the first. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And what Arthur Guinness wanted to do is that he not only wanted to serve the Lord, he wanted to go into business. He was, he was in his 20s. He was asking God to lead him so that he could do something in business. He had been given some capital to work with. What business would it be that he could go into that would help him to love his neighbor? And you know what God led him to do? To start a brewery. Now, that breaks some, some categories in here, you see? But up until uh, the Prohibition movement that started in the late 1800s, it was pretty common for people, Christian people, to drink wine and to drink beer. In fact, you read a little bit about the history of beer, and in this book, he'll give you a short history of beer. And the reason, there's a real simple reason that people drink beer, because the water was so bad. And because of the sanitation. And you all think, oh, it was just pristine and green earth back then. And no, they'd, they'd urinate in the river and downstream, they'd drink it and wash in it. And you had all kinds of diseases and cholera and all kinds of stuff. Even today in Africa, we're helping these people with water wells, with clean water. Okay? So they drink beer because there's a process of fermentation that develops alcohol, and alcohol kills germs. The pilgrims who were followed by the Puritans, who were driven out of England because of their love for the Bible, the average group of Puritans on a ship brought 10,000 gallons of beer with them because they didn't know what the water was going to be. Okay? I heard an amen over here. <laughs> this guy's got 10,000 gallons in his RV. <laughs> so Arthur Guinness, God leads Arthur Guinness to start a brewery and, and here's the context. 
It was, the, it was the same, I think it was uh, 1759, the same year that George Washington married Martha Custis. You remember that. Some of you guys were there. <laughs> God leads him to start a brewery. And he starts a brewery, and you know what he does? Because it's in the midst of a situation, contextually, here's something very interesting. He was in Dublin, Ireland. Dublin, Ireland in the 1700s was the equivalent of Calcutta, India today. Probably the worst city in the world is Calcutta, India. In, in the streets of Calcutta, India, garbage trucks drive the streets beginning at 4 a.m. picking up dead bodies today in Calcutta, India. Yes, they do. Just like they pick up your trash on your street, they pick up the dead bodies. Dublin, Ireland was a cesspool. One of the reasons was, was because so many people had gotten addicted to gin. Uh, gin was cheap. You could come up with it in your own house. One out of six homes in Dublin, Ireland was a gin house. It was cheap, it was inexpensive, and you could drink yourself blind and drink yourself dead, and families were being destroyed. It, 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 was, it was beyond belief. The human depravity and misery and families and children being broken. And Arthur Guinness asked God to lead him, and God led him to start a brewery. And he came up with a beverage. Did it have alcohol? Yeah, because it needed to. But it was also chock full of B vitamins, and it was marketed as a healthy drink. And God blessed that. And he was a Christian man. And God began to bless his family, and God began to uh, make it possible for him to bless others. You know, there's always been this thing between the Roman Catholics and the Protestants in Ireland. When he died, the Roman Catholics built a statue to Arthur Guinness because of his love for Christ and his love for the community and all that he did. And I don't have time, but you read what he did for his employees and how he took care of them. He paid them a wage that was greater than any other, sort of like Henry Ford when he doubled the wage of his guys. Only he wasn't like Henry Ford. Henry Ford had issues. Guinness didn't. Uh, healthcare, your wife had a baby, a midwife would come to your wife's house. You needed surgery, you were provided with it. Uh, there was a day of, of jubilee once a year beside your regular time off where everybody got a, got a, a, a day and they got a special uh, uh, check for the weekend and you would take your family out into the country, uh, provided with transportation by the company. This, this guy was a giver. He was just a giver and God blessed him. When you read the history of the Guinness family through the generations, and until recently it was in the family until it was sold out. Now it's a corporate deal. But the Guinness family broke into three streams through the generations. You had those who stayed with the brewery. Then you had those that went into banking and finance because they had so much income. Uh, and then there's a whole strain of pastors and missionaries. In the time of, uh, we all know of D.L. Moody. We all know of C.H. Spurgeon in the 1800s. There was also a great pastor by the name of Guinness descended from this family. Oh, it got really interesting because in the late 1800s, the temperance movement began and some of the Guinness uh, descendants said, I can't be involved in this because I don't believe anybody should be drinking beer. So you know what they had to do? They had to work out their stuff. And they did. Because they had different convictions in a family among Christians. So they worked it out. 
There's a guy named Os Guinness. He's a great apologist, defender of the faith, written many books. I've got many of his books in my library. Os Guinness is from this family. You say, God can't take a guy and lead him to start a brewery. <laughs> well, he did. He did. The, you say, listen, the Bible speaks against drunkenness. Does it not? Yeah, it does. And what this man did was that he was, listen, gin was the crack cocaine of the day, and he provided a balanced, healthy drink with some alcohol to fight off germs that could do decimation to people. He was being salt and light, and God blessed him through the generations. Not every family member followed Christ. Some were Esau's, but many did. So we're here tonight. We all got our stuff. We got our immediate stuff. We got the stuff on our table, the stuff we're worried about, concerned about. You're just trying to live life. But you know what? God's got his eye not only on you, but he's got his eye on those who are coming after you. You say, well, Jesus is coming back. Well, I know he is. Well, I think he's coming back soon. Well, so do I. But soon in the Bible can be 500 years. We don't know when he's coming. We just know he's coming. So what do we do? We occupy till he comes. Can I encourage you guys? Trust God not only to meet your needs, but to meet the needs for your kids and their kids and their kids. Is he a great God? You say, yeah, but somewhere in Deuteronomy I read that the sins of the father shall be passed to the seventh generation. Yeah, you also read in Deuteronomy that I am the God who blesses to the thousandth generation. So let's put our trust in him completely. Let's see what he has in mind. And there's going to be a great, uh, you know, there's going to be a great dinner one day. And the greatest dinner ever. It's called the marriage supper of the Lamb. And it would be great to be there with those who went before you and those who come after in the presence of Christ. Now that's a dinner. Looking forward to it. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for mercy and grace. Do we have our stuff in front of us today? Yeah, and you know all about it. So we give it to you, we ask for deliverance, and we ask you to keep delivering and keep saving. Keep us going. Thank you for the grace that keeps coming. We need it. Don't turn off the tap. You know, we know you won't. You promise not to. We live in grace and mercy all the days of our lives. We thank you that because of Christ, we shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <laughs>